0: Well, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I need to come before the Lord and ask for his help in this, so let's go before the Lord, shall we? Lord, I thank you for my friends that are gathered here, sisters in Christ, um, part of the body of Christ that you have assembled in this local church. I praise you for each and every roommate, each and every wife, each and every mother and grandmother that's here, Lord. You have given them a life, and you have given them grace to walk with you and abide with you, and in the course of events that you have laid out for them. Lord, I thank you that you know every one of the events of our lives, and you have apportioned the right measure of grace for each one of us to walk faithfully in this. Lord, this morning you have for us to be here, and you have for us to meet together. Lord, I thank you for the discussion leaders that are here. I thank you for the discussion groups themselves. how the ladies who are in each group know one another well, and they they understand one another's lives, and they pray for one another. Lord, what a beautiful picture of what is taking place. I pray for our time together here, Lord. I pray that you would communicate today. I pray that um, even though this message may have been heard before by some, Lord, I pray that your word would descend upon us all with with newness and with with depth and with power. Lord, I understand and recognize that there is nothing that I bring to this. I pray that you would accomplish your purpose through the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. So thank you again for this time. Thank you for the opportunity we have to meet together. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Okay, so first thing I want to say is thank you for being here. Um, Ephesians 4.16, the body causes the growth of the body. And when you sit here in a room like this and you break up into your discussion groups, uh, this is how the body causes the growth of the body, because this is what proper functioning is like. It's gathering together, considering God's word, and it's talking about what God's word means to you and what impact it has on you. So, thank you for doing the things that are necessary to do. It would be much easier to be horizontal right now at home. Um, it would be much easier, but you guys are here, and I recognize the, the effort that's involved in getting here and. And uh, my prayer is that the Lord would would bless that. So let's spend a little bit of time in the disciplines first, and then we'll move on to taking a look at First Thess 5.14. So you guys are so good. We have to tell the guys to do this. We have to tell the guys to turn their notebooks over. First, they have to find their notebook. (laughs) It's in the back seat. Let me get my notebook. It's out in the car. I'll be right back. Just look on with your friend. This is great. Different audience. Okay, so um, we know that we we have discipline one, we have discipline two, and we have discipline three, and they build on one another. And discipline one is when we meet alone with the Lord, and we we talk with Him. We allow His Word to speak to us in our time of reading and study, and we have the opportunity to speak back to the Lord in our time of prayer. And that involves time of praising and worshiping Him, a time of confessing our sin to Him, a time of thanking Him for how He's working in your life, and then a time of bringing before Him the things that are weighing on your soul. And um, you take the fruit of that into your home, whether you have roommates or you have a husband or you have kids or you have parents or whatever else it is, you take the fruit of your own heart shepherding right into your house. As soon as you stand up and walk away from your Bible and you interact with others, you are bringing to them the fruit of how you have cared for your own heart. Uh, and when you function well together as a household, you enter into a church and you bring the fruit of your functioning as a household into this church. And it is there that you get to interact with others. And when we talk about discipline three, uh, It has many, many manifestations. It could be this right here. It could be serving in next generation ministries. It could be leading in student ministries. It could be doing any number of other things. Uh, Serving on a missionary support team or anything else. Whatever you're doing, whether it's sitting in corporate worship or just fellowshipping outside the, the sanctuary, you're bringing the fruit of your discipline one and your discipline two into discipline three here at this church and so what I want to do this morning is, is share with you something that has been very helpful to me, to think carefully when I'm trying to focus on my time alone with the Lord. So you find yourself, you're sitting down, and you're thinking, okay, I've got a fixed period of time, um, I have things that are very pressing, I've either got little ones who are going to be right in front of me, or I have someplace I need to be, I'm thinking about what I'm doing at work today, I'm thinking about a bill that is coming tomorrow, I'm thinking about... Any one of other things, but I know that I have this time alone with the Lord. And um, okay, how do I get this started? How do I get my conversation with the Lord moving? Uh, I'm closing my eyes, I'm getting ready. And I have a passage for you that is very, very helpful. Um, it's Mark chapter 4. Um, this is the story of the, the parable of the soils. And the parable of the soils is in the first eight or nine verses. And you've got the sower, and you've got the seed. And you've got the soils, you've got the birds, you've got the thorns, um, you've got the weeds, you've got everything else. Our focus is not on the the parable itself, but it's what Jesus says after the parable. Um, So let's read verses 10, 11, and 12 together. And this will help us. And this relates to our prayer life. So Mark chapter 4, verses 10, 11, and 12. Jesus has spoken the parable, and now he's moved on. Starting in verse 10. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. So that, while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. There are two kinds of people that are being described in Jesus' explanation of why he speaks in parables. And what we have here are two things that are in play at the same time. We have God's mercy and we have God's justice. And you see the mercy in the first half of this. He says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. We have to ask ourselves who the you is here in this passage. We see it in verse 10. It's his followers along with the twelve. So there's a group of people who are following Christ along with the twelve, the chosen twelve disciples. And to them has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. They understand who Christ is. They understand him as the Messiah. They understand him as the one who can redeem them from their bondage to the law. They understand that clearly. But there's another group of people that are here. And these are the group of people who are outside It's very important to understand that this is not a group of people who are on the other side of the world. This is a group of people who are hearing the same thing that they're hearing. They're hearing the same parables. And what they're doing is they're seeing and not perceiving. And they're hearing and they're not understanding. And because of that, they don't have the capacity to return and be forgiven. And the way that relates to our prayer life is you sit down and you're thinking, okay, Lord, how do I engage with you? How do I... How do I make this a meaningful time? I want to have this be a really meaningful time this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whatever it is. It's very important to start sometimes with just the acknowledgement that the ability we have to comprehend who we are in Christ, comprehend the gospel message that saves, is something that God has given to us. Right there in verse 11, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes it's very helpful for me when I've got a lot of other things in front of me this day. To set aside everything by remembering this is who I am in Christ. I am one who has received knowledge in the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. God has helped me to understand his plan for salvation. He has rescued me. He has given me an understanding of who Christ is and what Christ did on the cross. He's given me an understanding of who God is as the creator and why he's so worthy of my worship. So that is a passage that's very, very helpful to me to just focus my mind and my heart on where I am. It puts some boundaries around my time with the Lord, and it sets the context, and it helps my frame of reference for when I'm sitting here, and um, it's just one thing I wanted to share with you this morning, um, that I have been a recipient of the, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. So, those are our disciplines this morning. What we're going to do now is we're going to turn to First Thess 5.14, and we're going to take a look at what is happening there, and... I'm going to pause and do something very important. Okay, and remind me again how much time I have here. Um, like to take a little break somewhere in the middle and you would like to dismiss by Okay. So, take a break in the middle of what I'm teaching and then dismiss by 8:25 or 8:30. Okay. Very good. All right. Okay. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to 1 Thessalonians? All right. Everybody in here knows that our lives are filled with relationships. At every turn, we have relationships, whether it's the people you live with, uh, the people who brought you into this world, the people you brought into the world, the people you work with, the people you worship with. Our lives are full of of relationships. Because we were born after the fall, um, our relationships bear the weight and bear the effects of the fall. And so we need to understand how to relate to one another biblically in those relationships. And at various times, we're going to find ourselves dealing with people who are unruly, and we're going to find ourselves dealing with people who are Faint hearted, and we're going to find ourselves dealing with people who are weak. And my heart this morning in sharing this is for a stronger Grace Bible Church. I know that Grace Bible Church is already a good church, and there are many, many good relationships that are in effect. There's tons of good relationships right in front of us here this morning, and I praise God for that. My heart here is only to help us grow what is already good into what is even more good. So we're going to be looking at chapter 5, verse 14, and it's an instruction passage. It's a passage that just has an instruction to it. It's a list of four instructions. Whenever we look at a a passage that is an instruction passage, it's very, very important to understand the context in which those instructions are are sitting. Um, And so what we're going to do is we're going to back out of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to just consider what is happening in Paul's encounter with the church in Thessalonica it takes place in his second missionary journey and he has traveled through what is present day Turkey and he has sailed across body of water to what is present day Greece and he starts in Philippi and meets resistance there forms a church and he leaves Philippi and he moves down to Thessalonica and the persecution that started in Philippi follows him to Thessalonica he stays there for about a month for three sabbaths and the persecution flushes him out of Thessalonica, and he travels down to Berea, and he goes to Corinth, and then he goes to Athens. Um, he leaves, and he's very, very concerned about how the church is doing because this church, by God's grace, formed in Thessalonica, but he only had a month to get it off the ground. Um, and so he's very concerned about how they're doing because there's persecution there. So he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how things are going. He didn't have phones, so he couldn't call and find out how it's going. So Timothy goes and he finds out how they're doing. And then Timothy returns. He joins up with Paul again with a report of how they're doing. And then Timothy and and Silas and Paul together write this letter to the church back to find out how they're doing. And so what we see is we have the letter is broken up into two halves. The first half of the letter. In the first three chapters, we have Paul's thoughts for the church in Thessalonica. And then in the second half of the letter, he has his instructions to them. And um, in chapter one, his thought is just overwhelming joy at how well they're doing. And you see it in verse eight. He talks about how the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. And so it's going forth. Not only did they establish themselves well as a church, but their gospel testimony is expanding. And Paul also recognizes in chapter 2 um, the current level of suffering that they're they're encountering. In verse 14 in chapter 2, he says, You also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen. What he's telling them is the same things that happened to the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. You're enduring that same thing in your context, and we understand that. But then he also expresses in chapter 3 his relief at how well they're doing when Timothy returns and gives them word of how well they're doing. He says in verse 6, But now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. So what this is, is this is a a young church. This is a new church. Uh, It's a church that's living in a lot of tribulation, but they are persevering and they are doing very, very well. So that's the first half. That's Paul's thoughts for the church in Thessalonica. But just like any letter that Paul writes, uh, he's got kind of a front half and a a back half. The front half is full of his confidence in who they are in the Lord. And his back half is instructions for how to live. And he instructs them in several different areas, starting in chapter 4. And it starts with verse 1 where he says, Okay, we've told you all these things. And at the end of verse 1 he says, Excel still more. So excel still more. I want you to excel. And here's the areas that I want you to excel in. In verses 3 through 8, he talks about purity, sexual purity. He's talking to all of them. This is a, a group of people who really only had a couple of months under their belt of Christian living, and prior to that, they lived like pagans. So he has to instruct them about that. They weren't born with this. They didn't grow up with examples of purity around them. In verses 9 through 12 of, of chapter 4, he talks about disciplined living. Um these were young Christians, and some of them had the understanding that Christ's return was imminent, and so they, they left everything. They left their jobs, and they left their livelihoods, and they were waiting around for Christ to return, and it wasn't good. So Paul tells them in verse 11, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. So Paul gave them clear instruction when he was there, and he had to remind them of that in his letter. Then he talks at the end of chapter 4 about the rapture. This is about the return of Christ. There are some brothers and sisters who are very faint-hearted, and they were wondering, you know, when is Christ returning? What about those who have died before me? And uh, what about them? What's going to happen to them? Because they really felt that Christ is coming at any time. What about those who are already dead? So Paul spends several verses explaining the return of Christ to them. He talks about the day of the Lord at the beginning of chapter 5, the first 10 or 11 verses something very different than the return of Christ. It's a very different sound. It's a very different tenor to it. It's a a tenor of conquest and judgment. And uh, they didn't understand how that was going either. So he spends ten or so verses talking with them about the return of Christ and the day of the Lord. Then after that, he has instructions about relationships. And in verses 12 and 13, he talks to them about how to relate to church leadership. This is really important because... This is a group of people who did not grow up with church leadership all around them. So he had to tell them in verses 12 and 13, these are the people that are over you, that the Lord has put over you. You need to esteem them, even though two months ago they were just like you, and they were pagans, and they were lost. So he gives them very clear instructions. And then he gives them instructions on their relationship with one another. It's a young church, and they've known a lot about how to relate with one another as unbelievers. They've only been living together as believers for a few months, so Paul has to give them clear instruction there too. And again, they never had an example in front of them. They didn't grow up with believers in front of them. And then he talks about personal holiness and how to conduct yourself both inwardly and outwardly in ways that are pleasing to the Lord. So you've got Paul's thoughts for the church, and they're very good, they're very encouraging, and then you've got his instructions. and He's giving these instructions because it's a young church, So we're going to take a close look at the four instructions that address the way in which the body interacts with one another. That's in chapter 4, verse 15. Let's just read it together. It won't take us very long to do that. Paul says, we, and again, that's Paul and Silas who are writing this letter. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at those one at a time. Okay, admonish the unruly. So as I mentioned, amidst all of the, the suffering, they had an understanding that Christ was going to return. And this is critical in our understanding of what unruliness means. And so some of them had left their work responsibilities, and for whatever reason, they were just waiting around for the return of Christ. And uh, Paul comes to know about this somehow, and May have been that he came to know about this because he observed it personally as he was there with them, or it may be that this is the message that Timothy brought to him when Timothy returns. Um, but whatever it was, it was ne- it was significant enough for him that he had to mention this to them. Um, and it was a really big issue because um, this was pressing. You see it in verse ten uh, b at the end of verse ten and verse eleven in chapter four. He says, we urge you, brethren, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. So this is a group of people who needed instruction on get back to work. This is your station in life. And uh, the ESV actually uses the word idle instead of unruly. And that gives you a better sense of what is happening there, that they were idle. And they're sitting there and they're just watching the world go by. And by the way, this, uh, this situation didn't go away with per- Paul's first instruction to them. Um, he had to write about it in his second letter. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, here's what he writes in verse 6. He says, keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, who leads an idle life. Stay away from that brother. So there was a group of them who by the time he wrote his second letter years later is still sitting around. In verse 11, he writes, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but they're acting like busybodies. That helps us understand the setting here, what Paul is getting at. So let's take a look at what it means to be unruly or what it means to be idle. So to be unruly here is, um, the Greek word is really interesting. It means to draw up or arrange The positive sense of the word means something that's drawn up or arranged. Um, The negative sense of the word means that something is not drawn up, something that's not arranged well, something that is out of order. Um, So we're going to fill in our blanks here. The unruly one has deviated from the prescribed order or rule. There is an order and there is a rule in which a person is to live, and the unruly one has advanced beyond that. They've gone outside of that. They've gone beyond it. And this is a place where they've gone. They're they're beyond a position of God's design. They're beyond a position of God's provision and God's safety for them. And now they're exposed to significant danger of one kind or another. And this is a characteristic trait of that kind of person. That person lacks the restraint to stay within God's prescribed order or rule. This is not talking about the person who has recently stumbled in an area of sin. Um, It's not talking about the person who, you know, just today had a really bad day with their kids and they lost it with their kids. Um, This is a person who characteristically is wandering beyond God's design for them. You know how it is when you have a sick child and you go to the pharmacy to get the prescription drug for them? You pick it up and there's two things that the pharmacist tells you. He tells you, okay, here's the dosage that you need to give them, and here's the interval on which you need to give that dosage. Um, The one who is unruly blows right by that. Mm -hmm. They just blow right past it, and they use whatever dosage they want at whatever interval they want until it's gone. And uh, that's the picture here that's happening. This person has no thought for staying within the order and the rule that God has prescribed for them. They have absolutely no thought of that in their mind. (coughs) And so what that person needs, they need those thoughts to be added to them. And that's what the admonishment is. Um, The word for admonish is another compound word, and it means to place near to the mind or to place in the mind. And what's being happened here is there is a warning that is being placed within the mind of the unruly one because their mind does not have that within it already. So literally... To admonish is to place a warning into the mind because the mind does not have that warning in it already. And notice the direction here. There's there's a warning that's coming into the person and it's coming from the person who's bringing the admonishment. And so what's being placed in the mind is a, a warning that has doctrinal and spiritual substance. This is a stern exhortation. It's a sharp reproof that's designed to rescue the one who has wandered beyond God's design for them, outside of God's order and rule for them. It's a sharp reproof. The one admonishing is coming with a message that says, you need this. You really, really need this. I love you, and I'm bringing to you to something that chances are you may not realize because this is characteristic of you. This is something that you truly, truly need. And this reproof aims at doing two things. First, it aims at showing them their sin, showing them where they are. They might not realize where they are. And then it points them on a clear path of repentance. So the warning shows them where they are, and then it helps them understand how to leave where they are and get back within the the design that God has for them. So here are some examples of what it might look like to be unruly might have a husband who is always complaining about his job. He comes home and you say, how was your day? And he says, and he goes on this long list of complaints. This man has deviated beyond God's design for him because God's design is that he would work diligently and he would work joyfully unto the Lord, understanding that the Lord has brings him everything in that day, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether it goes well or whether it does not go well. Another example might be a wife who consistently strains against God's design for her as her husband's helper. Um, her husband's leadership in their marriage is always a challenge for her. It's very difficult for her. She's fighting against God's design to submit to him. She's always seeking to be on on an equal plane for him. Might be somebody who doesn't understand God's design for. Um, how a person is to live in some area of purity in their life and when a friend comes to them they consistently reject the pleas of that friend or it might be a sheep who is just so difficult to shepherd that he's consistently a a grief and a pain to the elders that are over him it's the kind of man that's described in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 Um, whenever you have a a man who is consistently complaining about the work that he has that God has given to him. Whenever you have a wife who doesn't understand her position as a helper suitable and her husband as God's servant leader in her home. When you have a friend who continually rejects the the appeals of of another friend. When you have a sheep who's just difficult to shepherd and they're so unteachable. These are examples of people who are unruly. Um, the focus here is on the kind of person who will not be ruled by anything. So um, let's make sure we understand that. And so now we talk about how we actually admonish this person. So the first half of this, this part of the, the verse is describing the one who is unruly. Hopefully we understand that now. Um, how do we admonish one? And again, remember, we're placing a warning within the mind. Um What I have are are six principles that might help us with this. So I'm just going to state each one of the principles. Hopefully they're short and concise. And I'll list a a passage that goes with them. And uh, these are things that help me when I'm thinking about what it means to admonish. I hope they help you as well. First, first it deals with you. Remember your original condition. Um, The best instrument in God's hands is a humble instrument. And remembering who you used to be helps keep you humble. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let me read these. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It's helpful to remember that my very nature before Christ was I was always unruly. I was always outside of God's design. So that helps prepare me as I go to the one who right now is outside of God's design for them. So be humble first. And the second is examine yourself first. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, talks about removing the speck that's in your brother's eye after you've dealt with the log that's in your own eye. In verse 5, Jesus says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And then the blessing is you'll be able to see clearly, to see the speck that's in your brother's eye. So if you want to go to your brother, your sister, with um, a very clear message, very perceptive, good observation, you need to examine yourself for the log that's in your own eye first. And this is coming from Matthew. Remember who Matthew was? He's a tax collector. This is one who had sold out to the Romans, and he was overcharging every Jew he possibly could and keeping the profit for himself. He was familiar with being outside of the line of God's order, Uh, and he had to examine himself very carefully as a follower of Christ, as one of the twelve, when he began to teach, because he was one of them, uh, clearly one of them before so examine yourself. Third principle, embrace gentleness. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. You who are spiritual... that. Number three? Yeah, okay. Embrace gentleness. Embrace gentleness. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Um, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And then Paul goes on to tell them what that gentleness looks like. Um, a sharp warning, a stern warning, can be gentle. It's the content of what you say It's the warning. It's not your expression on your face. It's not your volume. It's not your gestures. It's not your posture. It's, it's the content of what you say. And we want to be ones who, in that content, make sure that we're being gentle as we communicate that. Principle number four. Point them to their heart. Point them to their heart. Acts chapter 5 and verse 3. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The story was Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property. They sold some property and they brought some of the proceeds forward and they laid it at the disciples' feet. The dishonesty in all of it was they, they advertised, they claimed it to be something other than what it was. They claimed that it was the full price of the sale when actually it was just part of the price of the sale. And so look at what Peter does. He takes them right to their heart. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Lord? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Lord? You know, unruliness is going to continue in a person until they determine in their heart that they no longer want to be there until they want to leave their sin. It's a heart issue. Unruliness is is very easy to see on the outside. It's glaring. You see it. You can't miss it. It's it's either yelling or it's some line of behavior or whatever it is. It, but it's a heart issue. Everything starts in our heart. And you guys know this at least as well as I do because it's in front of you every month or every week. Proverbs four twenty three. It's out of the abundance of your heart that we have all of this. It's from your heart that flow the springs of life. So Peter was right on it with Ananias, and we need to be right on it with our friends. Um, five, explain biblical repentance. Explain biblical repentance. Biblical repentance. repentance. Repentance, yeah. Do I need to crank up the volume here a little bit? <laughs> okay, I'll do that. No, your voice starts up, and then it attacks up. That's my bro. Okay, I'm going to keep it going here. All right, thank you. I'm sorry. Okay, so uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. You know how it is when we, we talk about repentance? Hey, are you repenting from your sin? Oh, absolutely I am. Of course I am. Um, yeah, I've been repenting so long it's not funny. Um, I'm really good at repenting. Well, guess what? 2 Corinthians seven eleven gives us a series of measures to actually measure repentance. So when you come to your friend who's unruly, this is what you put in front of them. This is how you can gauge whether you're leaving your unruliness. So if you have your Bible, turn there real quick, this is really good. The first thing that we see is that that repentance is characterized biblical repentance. Reference once again, Second Corinthians seven, verse eleven. Characteristics of biblical repentance. First is that it involves a vindication of yourself. The vindication here is that you're living in such a way in which there is no longer any evidence of that sin. There is a clear pattern of departure from that sin. So if you say to somebody, yeah, I'm repenting, uh, what that means is that there is decreasing evidence, very strongly decreasing evidence of that sin in your life. Going forward, there's really no record of it. Anyway, as a friend looks at your life, they can say, yes, that person truly is repenting because I don't see that anymore. Second characteristic of biblical repentance is indignation over being unruly, over being in your sin. Indignation. And the way we become indignant over something is we examine what Christ did at the cross on our behalf. We look at the cross and we say, I understand that a holy, sinless Messiah went to the cross and that every thought that I've had and every word that I've spoken and every deed that I participated in that was displeasing to the Lord contributed and added to his suffering at the cross. And that repulses me, that I should add to my Savior's suffering by my choice to run into sin. That is what it means to be indignant over your sin. It means that you're disgusted at the things that you've done that have added to the suffering of your Savior at the cross. He was on that cross, and his suffering was because of our own sin. The third characteristic of biblical repentance is a reverence for God. The NAS uses the word fear. The idea here is not being scared. The idea here is being reverent, and it's rooted in um, a clear understanding of God's holiness, God's justice, God's righteousness. Having a clear understanding of that that compels you towards a life of purity, a life of holiness, a life of being ruled by something, not being unruly. So it's understanding God and who he is and that your sin is an offense against him. Fourth characteristic of biblical repentance is a longing. What that longing is for is is for the fellowship that you had before you ran into this pattern of sin in your life. You remember back at what your life was like before this pattern of sin developed within you, and you see a closeness, you see an intimacy with the Lord, and you say, I want that again. Someone who is truly repentant is one who looks at their life and says, I want that. I recognize that my sin harms my fellowship with the Lord, and I want that better fellowship with the Lord. The fifth characteristic of biblical repentance is zeal. Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 1 as well tells us that God has lavished his grace upon us. 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us that we have been given everything we need for life and godliness according to the true knowledge of him. God has given us everything we need to walk in newness of life. And it is incumbent on the believer to utilize every means of grace that God has given to us to actually wage war against sin. We don't just close our eyes and clench our fist and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. We actually remember our identity in Christ. We remember that when Christ was raised from the dead, he overcame sin so that sin no longer rules the believer. And we walk in truth and in the knowledge of that. That means it's... It's something that we expend energy on. It's something that we, we think through. We go through a process in our mind. We, we think carefully about this. We're very intentional about this. And then lastly, there's an avenging of wrong that caused your unruliness or that caused your sin. We know that God is the ultimate avenger of wrong. And the idea that's, that's going on here is we're not trying to replace what, what God is doing and that God is the one who will avenge all wrong against him. We remember that He avenged himself on Christ in our place at the cross. But what we're looking at here is a self-applied consequence uh, to our sin that will lead us towards more holy living, that will lead us away from unruliness. We impose things on our life in which we incur a cost that will lead us towards holy living. We remove things from our life. We require ourselves to, to undergo certain things or to engage in certain things. on the aim of all of those things is to lead us away from unholiness so when you're sitting with a friend and they they acknowledge that they're unruly and they acknowledge that they need to repent from their unruliness it's really helpful to put this in front of them and say this is the standard and I would love to help you walk in this or love to put you in touch with someone who can help you with this because when you have someone who's unruly and they don't really know it or they know it and they're numb to it uh, turning from it is hard and giving them clear steps about how to measure their repentance is very helpful. And lastly, be clear about God's grace in the gospel. This is, back to the six principles. Okay. Yeah, this is principle number six. Be clear about God's grace. You know, you're coming to someone who's unruly. It's, uh, it's likely that they might be a little defensive. It's likely that they might want to keep you at arm's length. They want to keep you away. What you want to help them understand is that God's grace here in the gospel has given you everything you need.
1: I mentioned it earlier, Romans
0: chapter 6 has, I believe it's something like 17 grace truths in the chapter. They talk about truths that are true about a believer because of Christ's work on their behalf. And my favorite is in verse 4. It says, um, Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too can walk in newness of life. You go to your friend who's stuck in unruliness, and you say, you actually have the ability to turn from this if you are a believer. God has given you the ability to do this. Um, this is not hopeless. This will truly, truly help you. And where was that reference? That was Romans 6.4. All right. So what if the unruly one is my husband? My husband, your husband. <laughs> what the unruly one is your husband. Um, how do you admonish the one who is your authority in your head? That's hard. So, here are some thoughts. Uh, first, these are principles, these are not specifics, but principles. Pray before you do anything. Um, it is so tempting to just run right into something and lead with yourself, lead with prayer um pray for yourself and for your husband pray that by god's grace you would both be quick to speak no quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry (coughs) james chapter one um go within your biblical role go within your biblical role as a helper who is suitable um You go and you say, you know, this has nothing to do with me being irritated. This has nothing to do with me feeling offended. This has nothing to do with me feeling like I am being put out by your sin. Um, God has a design for our marriage. And I want you to understand that I want to stay within my role as being your helper who is suitable to you. Uh, And God knows that you need another perspective on this. You might not know that, but God does. And his design in bringing us together in marriage is that I could help you with this. And you can help me where I am unruly. And lastly, you want to help him see if you have a believing husband that this is how the body cares for itself. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. God causes the growth in the body through the body. Let's look at the middle of the verse in Ephesians 4, 16. It says, the whole body causes the growth of the body. And in the middle, Paul says, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. And you say, this is what proper working of each individual part looks like. It involves us sitting down and talking about this. So we understand that the unruly one is one who has extended beyond, they've gone beyond God's design for their life we understand that the admonishment is a warning that's placed inside the mind because the mind doesn't have that warning already and we understand some principles for how to actually do that admonishment so that's the goal there that's the idea, that's my heart Um, what we'll do is we'll take a little break now we'll be back in a few minutes and we'll pick up with encouraging the fainthearted. Okay, so a question came up during the break. Um, NAS uses the word unruly. ESV uses the word idle. What's the difference? Why is there... How do you have an idle person who's an unruly person? What's the connection? And, And the explanation there really is that unruly is the overall term that's being used to describe this person. And that can apply to a bunch of different situations, whether it's how they spend their money or how they speak or, or what they do with their time or what they do with their friendships, what they do with their, their purity, what they do with anything like that. Um, Idle was the specific instance of unruliness in Thessalonica. They were sitting around waiting for Christ to return, and they were, at least by the time the second letter comes around, they were being busybodies. So idleness is the. The specific instance of unruliness that's at play in Thessalonica. Okay? All right. All right. The second part, the second exhortation that Paul gives to them is to encourage the faint-hearted. And so again, we're going to talk about the kind of person that's being described here, and then we're going to talk about what it means to encourage that kind of person. So again, we have another Greek compound word, and the compound word means uh, two things. The first word is small or little, and the second word is soul. Um, So this person is a person with a small soul. The faint-farted one is one with a small soul, most likely because they've been battered down by a series of events or circumstances that, that God has brought into their life. And this is the only instance of this word in the New Testament. Um, And when you think about the setting here, you think about the church in Thessalonica. It's a church that's been up and running for a very short period of time. And there are Jews who have a lot of might, who have a lot of power, who have a lot of heft that they are wielding that is making their life very hard. Um, They've only been believers for a few months and their life is difficult. And you can see how these people might become ones with a very small soul. The problem is not going to go away anytime soon. The Jews will hate the gospel as long as they're in their unbelief. There's really no change coming. Um, That's the kind of person that's being described here. This is the opposite from the person who is very successful in everything they undertake. They're successful in all of their battles against sin. Their work is going well, their parenting is going well, Um, they're very healthy. Um, they're on top of it in every area of their life. Um, that's not the person that Paul is addressing here. This is a person who becomes increasingly deflated as a difficult situation remains unchanged. They keep waiting and waiting and waiting, whatever the circumstance is, and it doesn't change. It's a difficult situation that may have lasted so long that they're, difficulty, they're finding difficulty and joy, in God's design and the course of life that God has prepared for them. Um, they may begin to entertain doubts over God's concern and God's care for them, and they might begin to withdraw from fellowship. Um, there really isn't anything wrong with this person's theology. They understand the word, they understand the gospel, it's just that life has been very hard for a very long time. Here's a couple examples. Let's say you have a job, and for some reason that's beyond your control, this job is very difficult for you to perform, but it's the job that God gave you. And your employer is very insensitive to your situation, and they continue to levy unreasonable expectations upon you, um, regardless and despite your appeals to them. They're unwilling to listen to you. Um, and it becomes a regular item of discussion in your performance reviews. Uh, they always bring it up. They always put it in front of you, and they just don't understand your position. Uh, it's very easy for that person over the course of time to become faint-hearted. Let's say you're you have uh, someone within your family who needs care from you. And they need a lot of care from you because they're they're in a very needy situation. Um, And if that person is one who makes it very difficult for you to provide that care because of the way they treat you, um, it is easy for that person to become faint-hearted. The Thessalonians were faint-hearted. They were small-souled because they were suffering persecution from the Jews. Again, we see that in chapter 2, verse 14. um, You, brethren, became imitators of the church of God. That are in Judea, you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. You see the word endured right there in the middle of the sentence? Uh, That means that this is a prolonged suffering. This is going on, it's continuing, it's continuing. It's probably not going to change. And Paul sensed this, and that's why he sent Timothy to them to find out how they were doing. Um, And look at what he does in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 um Paul's wondering how they're doing he's left he's down farther south he's in Corinth, and when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens. He moves on to Athens and we sent Timothy our worker in the gospel, to strengthen and to encourage you as to your faith so he knows they're faint-hearted he sends Timothy to them to encourage them let's look at what the word encouragement means. Um, Again, it's another compound word in the Greek. And you have two things that are taking place at one time. You have the idea of something being very close at hand. And you have soothing speech that's also being spoken. So you have the idea of something that's close and something that's soothing. And so um, to encourage is to bring comforting words from close proximity. Comforting words at close proximity. So let's make a couple observations about this. Uh, The first is that encouragement, effective encouragement, comes from somebody who is near to you. You don't encourage somebody from very far away, where you're distant from them personally, where you're not attached to them in, in some significant way. A friend who is close beside you, a friend who draws near, is one who's willing to leave their own situation, their own environment, in order to care for you. They're willing to leave their own comfort zone. They're willing to leave their list of tasks, the list of things they need to do. They're not kept away by some kind of distaste of your unpleasant circumstances. Um, They're not kept away by the mass of problems that seem to be in place here. They're not kept away by the fact that the person appears to be a very needy person. There's nothing about that. They're not kept away by commitments they've made in their schedule. They've got a long list of things that they feel that God has for them to do. Um, It's a person who's willing to be near you. So we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Is there anything about the circumstance, about my faint-hearted friend that would keep me away, just the circumstance in itself? Do I have any bias against that circumstance? Am I unwilling to enter into that? another question there would be have I chosen a level of activity in my life that prevents me from even noticing when my sister is faint-hearted you know, our ability to come alongside a brother or a sister and function um, and help them and assist them requires us to actually notice when they need help the second half of this is that encouragement comes from one who has a comforting message. I'm going to pause for a second. So it comes from somebody who actually possesses a comforting message. And a soothing message is a message that that does two things. Um, First of all, it acknowledges the situation that your friend is in. It acknowledges the situation. It doesn't just blast right in with a solution. It says, I understand where you are. I see where you are. And I agree with you. I acknowledge that must be very hard. The second thing that it does is it brings the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. It's very helpful when you're encouraging your friend with the gospel because it resets their perspective. And their situation may have been in place for so long that their perspective may have actually changed, their understanding may have actually changed. They may have lost sight of the essentials of their salvation, God's choice of them, Christ's suffering on their behalf, God's grace that's been lavished on them in this present trial, their place of service and worship of God in eternity, God's use of trials to grow them, a long list of things that a believer might have lost sight of because they're in a very difficult situation. So we want to bring the gospel to one who is faint-hearted. So one question we can ask ourselves is, do I understand the gospel well enough to use it as a source of true encouragement? Uh, Do I know how to tie the, the death of Christ and the cross, his resurrection from the dead, grace that comes to us through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to a very difficult situation that my friend is in? And do I know how to do that in a way that's winsome, a way that's gentle, a way that's kind? It doesn't reek of a choreographed delivery. It's personal. It's genuine. It's sincere. It's near. It's soothing. Do I know how to do that? The second question we might want to ask ourselves is, Do I regularly encourage myself with the gospel? Before we bring a gospel message to encourage somebody else, are we applying that very message to ourselves first in our situations? We don't want to bring something to somebody else that we're not applying to ourselves first. So when Paul encourages the church in Thessalonica, he encourages them in two ways. First, he encourages them with their present position in Christ. And then he encourages them with their future position in Christ. In his second letter to them in chapter 2, he writes in verse 13 um, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. The soothing message here is, is very important. It has two parts to it. First thing he tells them is, You're beloved. You're very dear and you're very precious to the Lord. The second thing he tells them is that your salvation is something that God has been very thoughtful about before the foundations of this world, before creation. Ponder that. Go to your friend and you say, you know, you need to understand that as a believer, you're beloved by God. God actually loves you. He has never turned his heart from you. He is not ignorant of you. He sees everything right in front of him. He's not losing this at all. And secondly, he's been thoughtful about this since before he spoke light into existence. He knows exactly what is taking place, and he has redeemed you. He has controlled the events of human history, such as to bring salvation to you, and then he's lavished grace upon you. So he encourages them in their present position, but then he also encourages them in their future position as well. And we see that in in chapter 4 of his first letter, in the the end of that chapter. Again, this is a group of people who are very faint-hearted, and they weren't sure about their brothers and sisters in Christ who have died and what happens to them. And so Paul brings them um, five or six verses that describe the return of Christ. And I need to share with you something about this before I, I read these verses to you. That is, that when I became an elder 10 years ago, I, I did not have a firm position on when the return of Christ was coming. And I realized I need to do that. I need to get... I need to get a clear understanding of the return of Christ and when it takes place. It was one of those buzz issues in the church 10 years ago. And what's your position on eschatology? And so I I needed to get that. And so I I did undertake a a pretty serious study of it for probably a year and a half to two years. And I I found myself in a good place with that. But what I noticed was something very unexpected in all of this. And that is that whenever you read in the New Testament and you read in the Old Testament, um, events that talk about the return of Christ events that talk about the millennium events that talk about God's permanent reign or his millennial reign what is very close by in all of those is encouragement it's not just okay here's how it's all going to unwind and that's it it's here is God's design and you can take comfort in God's control over this design and we see that here in chapter 4 verses uh, let's take verse 16 17 and 18 and um, sorry 15 through 18 for this we say to you by the word of the Lord and look at all the things that he's going to describe here that will comfort we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with a voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first how encouraging is that Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's encouraging. To meet the Lord in the air. That's encouraging. And we shall always be with the Lord. That's encouraging too. This is all futuristic. This is future tense. And then he says it to them. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So remember, when you bring the gospel message to somebody, you, you bring them a gospel message that talks about their current position, and you bring them a gospel message that talks about their permanent position. This is just one place in the New Testament you can find several others that talk about what Christ is going to do when he returns, and it's a very comforting message for believers. The two Thessalonian letters are are very eschatological in in their nature. And the reason why is because this is a very persecuted church and they need a lot of encouragement. And the best way to encourage somebody is by where they are going when they die. Remind them of where they're going when they die. So how can I tell if my sister is faint-hearted? Remember, they have a small soul. That's the prominent characteristic in the one who's faint-hearted. They may have a good understanding of of theology. They may understand God's design for salvation very well, but they need encouragement to persevere in the trial. Um, and in many cases, when you bring the comforting words to them, they already know those comforting words and they understand them. They might even understand them better than you do, but actually hearing them is what brings the encouragement. Remember, the encouragement is the, the comforting, the soothing words that are spoken through close proximity. It has nothing to do with the brother or the sister's relative understanding of the gospel in relative to the other one. It's the words themselves that bring the encouragement. So don't be shy about that, regardless of who it is. All right, so that's what it means to encourage the faint-hearted. We've got one more here. 15 through 18? Oh, okay. That was 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. Sure. Very encouraging passage. Okay, so now we're going to help the weak. So uh, this one doesn't have a compound Greek word to it, so we're done with those. Um, What we're dealing here with someone who is weak, and the weak one is one who is lacking in strength. And So when you hear that definition, you think that we might be talking about somebody who is lacking a physical prowess, they're lacking stature, they're not big and strong and tall and dark and everything else. But that's not what they're talking about here. They're they're not talking about a physical impairment. Uh, They're talking about somebody who lacks a good spiritual foundation. It's somebody who lacks a good spiritual foundation. It's a person who is easily misled. It's a person who lacks discernment. It's a person who regularly demonstrates poor judgment. They generally do not use scripture when they're making decisions. This person has a worldview of the world around them that's not informed by scripture. Uh, they can be easily gripped by fear as they view a situation from a very secular, not a biblical perspective. And they can fall into patterns of sin very easily because of their weak foundation. And so what this person needs is this person needs help. And again, they don't need primarily physical help. What they need is the kind of help here that's being described. Um, Literally, to help is to bring necessary aid to them. And the word necessary is is really important to understand. They need this. What they need is is a strengthening of their biblical foundation. Um, They need it because they lack it right now, and they have no ability to make wise, sound, biblical decisions. Some of the Thessalonians were weak in their understanding of the return of Christ, and like I said, they, they thought Christ's return was intimate, imminent. It was going to happen any day, so they were just sitting around waiting. Um, and this led them to make poorly informed choices about their decision to go to work and the way they used their time. And so Paul had to write to them about it, and he told them, lead a quiet life, attend your own business, and work with your hands. That's 1 Thess 4.11. And again, it was so bad that he had to instruct them again in the second letter. The way that he helps them also is at the beginning of chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is a group of people who really didn't have a clear understanding that there was a distinction between the return of Christ and the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment on the earth. And so Paul spends 10 or 11 verses describing that for them. Uh, They were very weak in their understanding of that, and that led them to make poor decisions. So he spends 10 verses describing how the Lord will return and how He will avenge Himself on this earth. So Paul's Paul's help to them comes in two parts. He he gives them first very clear teaching of Christ's return that it's going to be sudden, it's going to be unpredictable, like a thief in the night. So don't sit around and wait for it. Um, and secondly, he provides instruction that says at the end of uh, this passage in First Thessalonians chapter five verse eleven, he says, "Build one another up." Um, his help there is intended to address the deficit in their understanding uh, regarding the timeline of Christ's return and the day of the Lord, because that was leading them into very poor decisions. So biblical help is, is help that's aimed at strengthening a brother's or a sister's biblical foundation. Um, the main aim here is not to help their immediate physical need. The main aim is to strengthen their biblical foundation that they live by. Um, so we don't always help in the way that's most obvious. Um, a person might have a very real, very physical need that comes about because of their weak understanding. Um, for example, if you have a friend who's always pressed to meet their monthly bills. Um, they don't have good spending habits. They don't have good saving habits. They don't necessarily they're not on top of their finances and they always find themselves short for rent at the end of the month you know the the help that they need is not the 75 dollars to make their rent payment or their car payment the help they need is is more of a clear understanding of god's design for stewardship and resources Um, you might be able to alleviate the immediate need by giving them 75 dollars to make their rent payment or their house payment But the bigger issue is is more of an ongoing nature of understanding God's design for stewardship of what he has entrusted to our care. And so the right help might be to sit down with, with your friend and say, this is God's design when he gives us a paycheck, when he gives us income. This is what he intends for us to do with it. First of all, it doesn't belong to us. It's his, and we're stewards of it. So we need to be very careful about our choices, and we go from there. That's much more helpful in the long run and a quick fix, and it's going to come back again 30 days later next month. Or let's say you you have a, a friend, and she cannot stop talking about a guy. And she's always talking about his appearance, she's talking about his face, she's talking about his skills and his car. She might even speak very admirably about his income or anything else. Our culture says, you know, she's smitten with him; she's fallen for him; she's really taken by him. Um, biblically, what, what we're dealing with here is somebody who's weak, somebody who has a very poor understanding of what God designs and desires for a man in a relationship. So, what that person needs is they need to sit down with their friend and help them understand Ephesians five twenty five. This is what God designs for a man to lead a relationship. He needs to love his wife the way Christ loves the church in a very self-sacrificing way that's that's independent of his income and his vehicle and his appearance and everything else. Um, so the main idea here is we want to be providing a biblical foundation to the one who's weak. We want to do it again in a spirit of gentleness. We want to do it in a way that is free from being irritated or annoyed or put out. We want to do it in a way that is gracious and truly helpful to the one who needs it. So a couple of questions. Um, First, am I discerning enough to recognize when my friend is weak? Um, When I'm in a conversation with somebody, am I listening for the comments that might indicate a weakness? Comments about their use of their time, their use of their money, their use of their friendships, um, their use of their choices in entertainment. Am I listening for those things? and Am I recognizing when comments may be pointing to a weakness in a foundation that needs to be helped. And secondly, do I understand their root need? Do I understand enough questions so I have a clear understanding of the situation? Do I possess a growing ability to bring the biblical help that they need? And can I do this graciously and kindly? I'm in a way that's very winsome. It's easy for them to hear, easy for them to understand. Okay, so Paul talks about one more instruction. And this instruction is not given to a particular kind of person. This instruction is given to everybody. It's be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. There's no secret here as to what it means to be patient. It just means to refuse, to retaliate with anger. It means to be long-tempered. But Paul says, be patient with everyone. So be patient with the unruly one. Be patient with the weak one. Be patient with the faint-hearted one. Be patient with everybody. Because when you have someone who's unruly, they're not going to change uh, immediately. It's going to be a process. When you have one who's faint-hearted, they're not going to change overnight. You're going to be walking with them for a while. When you have somebody who's weak and they've lived for many, many years in their adult life with a, a poor understanding, it's going to take time for that understanding to grow and strengthen in God's word. So we need to be patient in all of those things. One principle that's important to remember in this is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And that is that God began a work in that person, and he is going to finish that work in that person. And when they breathe their last is when God is done with them. That's Philippians 1.6. And so all of that helps us to be patient, recognizing that each person is on a trajectory that God has designed from salvation up until death. He is there on a trajectory of sanctification, and God is using us as instruments in their lives. So that one's shorter than all the rest. Um, again, we just want to bear in mind that for the instructions that deal with all three of them, we need to cover all of them with patience as we're dealing with one another. So I hope that's helpful to all of you. Let me pray. And if we want, we can do some questions and answers or we can just be done early. So let me pray. Father, again, I thank you for my friends, these dear ladies who are here this morning. I thank you for the circumstances in each one of their lives. Lord, whether their circumstances are challenging right now or whether they're more easy, Lord, it's comforting to know that you have ordained all of them. I thank you that you have equipped each one of them with an understanding of the gospel that they are ready to bring to bear on the one who is unruly and on the one who is is faint-hearted, and the one who is weak. Lord, I pray for each one of them for the rest of this weekend, for next week, whatever that entails, whether they're working in their home or they're working in the workplace. Lord God, that you would grant them your grace to function in relation to the rest as you designed them to. Lord, I thank you for their patience. I thank you for their willingness to sit here I truly pray that they would be blessed from this time spent together. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.